0: Hello, and welcome to the Nashville Sounding Board, the podcast dedicated to discussing social and political issues in the Nashville community. I'm your host, Benjamin Eagles. Views that I express on this podcast and on my social media accounts are mine alone and do not reflect the views of the metropolitan government of Nashville and Davidson County. My guest today is John Bunchen, staff writer at Governing Magazine. He covers healthcare, public safety, and urban affairs. John is a graduate of Princeton University's Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs, and he is the author of two books, Governing States and Localities, and L.A. Noir: The Struggle for the Soul of America's Most Seductive City. John, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me on, Ben. I really admire what you've been doing here. I guess in this conversation, I wanted to cover two big topics. One would be a follow-up from your article in July about the state of affairs in Nashville, that kind of traced the development focus over the last quarter century in Nashville, the failed transit vote, former Mayor Megan Berry scandal, and then kind of left us with an eye forward under Mayor Briley. And then also wanna to get to the topic of police reform and the article you wrote in January about how police departments should grapple with accountability. I guess before we get to that, kinda of wanna have people get a chance to know you how did you get into writing about government and public affairs? I uh, started out uh, focused on
1: foreign policy and then worked my way into national politics, uh, working for the Almanac of American Politics, which is a great resource for political wonks. Uh, went to work at National Journal and then took a few years and worked as a case writer at the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard. Um, While at the Kennedy School, uh, I started working on policing issues at a time when a lot of the ideas that would become community policing were coalescing. It was a natural move to go from uh, the Kennedy School to governing, which covers state and local government, primarily for an audience of state and local government policymakers. About five years ago, um, my wife and I moved to Nashville. I was born in Nashville but grew up in Mississippi. And this was my home base while I wrote about the experiences of state and local governments across the nation. But earlier this year, um, a question came to mind, which I just wanted to explore in the story that you referenced. And that question is, how can Nashville, in the middle of a historic boom, how, how can metro government have run out of money? What what happened? And so that's what I dug into.
0: And before we jump into that, can you give us a book recommendation? You're, of course, the author of two books. You showed me another two books here right before we started recording. What are you reading? What's a recommendation for people out there? Well, I just finished a
1: fantastic book by a Columbia historian named Adam Tooze called Crashed which is a history of the 2007-2008 financial crisis. It is a big 800-page technical book, but it's a fascinating exploration of transatlantic finance, the global-based economy, state capacity. I've just wonked out over it, and I am super enthusiastic about it. Closer to my field of expertise, um, right now I am working on a book review for The Wall Street Journal, about uh, former Oklahoma City Mayor Mick Cornett's new book, Next American City. He's uh, a, a fascinating figure, elected four times, the most high-profile Republican mayor in the country. Um, in addition to writing for Governing, I've also written four publications as diverse as New York Times Magazine and City Journal, um, a publication of the conservative Manhattan Institute. So I like to come at things from different angles, and I'm enjoying – Uh, reading about Mayor Cornett's approach to governance, which I think has some applicability to Nashville. Maybe we'll get into that later on.
0: Sure. I hope so. In your article in July, of course, you covered the revenue shortfall that Nashville has um, that basically came to light right at the tail end of, of the transit campaign. To what extent would you say that Nashville is is in a fiscal crisis? A lot of people have said we're not. The um, current mayor, Mayor Briley, is adamant that we're not in a fiscal crisis. Um, the Metro Council just approved the authorization of $775 million in GO bonds to cover spending that had already happened using commercial paper. But how would we know if we are in a financial crisis, if we're approaching a financial crisis? What would the warning signs be and, and how much of a concern, if any, is Nashville's rising debt? Well, Nashville's
1: fiscal crisis is, in my opinion, largely an artificial crisis. Um, based on my reporting, what I, what I learned was that in order to pay for metro government, Nashville mayors have to raise property tax rates. Every four years, at least every four years, the state requires the city to do a reassessment. How that reassessment works is kind of funky. It has to be revenue neutral. So if property values go way up, tax rates automatically go down so that there's no net revenue increase. That's a way of forcing the mayor and the city council to vote to raise property taxes, to make it hard. and it is hard to vote to raise taxes, but basically every four year, with two exceptions, during economic recessions, Nashville's mayors and city council have bitten the bullet and they voted to raise property taxes. In 2017, when Mayor Barry was in office, that did not happen. And in my opinion, that created an acute fiscal shortfall. And one which is hard to assess the seriousness of because it didn't need to happen at all.
0: Right. And to what extent was that choice driven by the upcoming transit vote? And if if that decision not to raise property taxes in 2017 was essentially a political choice, was the choice not to raise property taxes in 2018 under Mayor Briley once we knew the extent of the budget shortfall, was that a political choice? And, and what's the forecast going forward I didn't speak to Mayor Barry and a- have a
1: chance to ask her directly why she made that decision. In speaking with people around her, uh, there's a – I'd say the conventional wisdom would be that she was focused on transit. She'd be pushing a sales tax increase. There was a huge boom underway. It just seemed you know, infeasible in, in to ask voters to – Raise property taxes at that point. You know, she celebrated Nashville having the lowest uh, property tax rate um, in 2017. So she embraced. She knew what she was doing with that decision, and uh, she dramatically increased uh, Metro's budget. I believe that spending rose by. $220 million during her time in office. You would know better than I. Um, and uh, I, I, I think there while that didn't receive much discussion, uh, people who are tuned into how metro finances work knew that, that was a very
0: risky course of action to take. And I guess the end result was just a um, miscalculation of how many people would contest assessments. And um, if we had foreseen that or if that number had been lower, certainly we wouldn't be in the, in the position we are now. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because
1: that is the dominant narrative. Uh, there have been some gr- there's been some great investigative journalism uh, done by the Tennessean primarily looking into city finances. And they've really focused on the increase in appeals to property tax rates. You know, Nashville has a few – very distinctive features. You know, one is that revenue forecasting is more concentrated in the mayor's office than in most cities. And if you have the ability to forecast revenues, that gives you tremendous power. I mean, if we're a family and I say, guess what, honey, our revenues next year are going to increase by $220 million, then the family budget is going to be pretty expansive. Your wife would probably be pretty happy. Two hundred twenty million dollars. She'd be she'd be psyched, you know. If you so that gives the the mayor a terms of power. The other thing is with the appeals process in most cities, you can appeal your property tax increase, but guess what? It could be higher. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when I lived in Washington D.C., which is where I was prior to moving here, uh, we were in a neighborhood where property taxes were increasing. It was distressing on the one hand, but I knew that if I appealed, the city could come back and say, actually, we think it should be even higher. So that op- that's a constraint. Here, appeals can only result in your in your property tax bill being reduced. So of course, there's an incentive to appeal. 55% people, uh, more people did this last time around. And it led to this $20, $25 million shortfall. But I mean, let's be serious. Metro's budget last year was about $2.2 billion, right? I think it's $2.3 billion. $20-plus $20 million is significant. But in a $2.2 billion budget, that is not the main thing. I and mean, I had a chance to talk with Mayor – to ask Mayor Briley about this. And he said that if – there had not been a state law in effect that automatically reduced property tax rates. In a world in which Nashville could have kept the same property tax rate mm-hmm. and benefited from the significant increase in property assessments, I believe that was about forty-five percent. The city would have had an extra half a billion dollars to spend—half a billion dollars. Now that was your wife never... would have been really happy. <laughs> That was never going to happen, of course. No mayor of Nashville is going to to champion such a huge increase. But there's a huge scale disparity. And even now, discussions about the budget seem to often buy into this idea that, oh, it's an appeals problem. The mayor just appointed a blue ribbon committee to look for $20 million in savings. Uh, That's a great idea. We should definitely have experts looking at the budget and looking for savings. I don't think there'd be anyone who would disagree with that. But it does perpetuate this myth that we have some kind of appeal, some kind of appeals problem. And and what we have is a political courage problem or political calculations, which seem to have prevented the new mayor from doing what seems, to me at least, to be the thing that he obviously needs to do, and that is raise property taxes.
0: Well, and next year will be an election year as well.
1: Yes, the political cycle has made it hard for us. So um, no one running for office wants to raise the property tax. And of course, there was a mayoral election this year. There's another mayoral election next year, and there are certainly people who think that that means that there won't be any type of property tax increase for two years. Those people are probably right, given Mayor Briley's position, but that is a choice that the mayor has made. There were people on the council, such as Councilmember Mendez, who looked at the math and pointed out the need to do a property tax increase now. That was considered. That was voted down. It's hard to support a property tax increase when the mayor says it's not necessary. But I think it puts Nashville in a very difficult position for the next two years. I mean, I think that this decision not to raise the property tax rate, to act like Somehow a budget crisis has arrived from some vague place that we have to deal with. That it happened to us. That it happened to us and that we have to tighten our belts and that we really would like to make investments in raising teacher pay or raising uh, wages for city employees, but we can't because of this thing that's happened to us. Um, I don't think that's right. As I've made clear, and I think it's distorting city policymaking in some in some strange ways. I mean, let's just take the mayor's first state of the city address. You know, he was at the Nashville Public Library, and he quoted his grandfather, uh, Mayor Beverly Briley, the first mayor, strong words, consolidated um, metro government, and uh, he quoted his grandfather, striking a very Kennedy esque. Uh, note saying, you know, the work of persuading Nashvilleians to provide for today while also acting today for the sake of tomorrow now falls to me. OK, you, you know, that that's that's inspiring. But it didn't lead to any difficult actions. Instead, I think his next announcement was that the city was planning to uh, to Get rid of the park across from the library. Downtown say, land swap. Yes, a uh, land swap, and uh, <laughs> goodbye park with the troublesome homeless people. Uh, that will go to a developer who plans to build a sixty-plus-story luxury high-rise building. Tony Girantana. which is trying one, to build an even taller tower than his five hundred five building. Yep, yeah, which he says Nashvilleans will admire from afar. That is one way to deal with the homeless problem. And in exchange, uh, you know, he will do a land swap and he'll be involved in various ways with facilitating improvements and overseeing construction of a new hundred bed unit. And he'll kick the city somewhere between one and a half and two million dollars. It's changed a bit. I mean, the notion that these, these are commensurate values just seems to me on the face of it strange. I mean one could be the home of a 60-plus-story luxury high-rise. The other couldn't. H- how can that be? A, a, or
0: presumably he would have just built it there.
1: Right. And, uh, you know, I think that – I mean to step back, Nashville has a serious homeless problem. I think the last estimate – there were about 1,000 people who are chronically homeless in the city – and maybe 2,000 or so people who were – who are homeless on a recurrent basis, uh, 100 beds is, is – it's not, it's not nothing. It's, it's significant. But the fact that the city has to address this problem by doing these types of land swaps and developer deals I think reflects its unwillingness to raise the revenues to take on serious problems.
0: And, uh, you know, homelessness isn't the only serious problem out there. One argument that many on council made as to why they didn't want to vote for the property tax um, adjustment was that it would somehow increase gentrification and that it would drive people out. It would make it unaffordable for them because their property tax bills would go up and it would perhaps force people to sell. Any validity to that argument? Well... The way in which property
1: taxes have moved up and down across the city has been peculiar
0: and has raised some eyebrows. Because a, uh, a lot of wealthiest Nashvilleians saw their property tax bills drop. Yes. The
1: residents of the Bellmead area uh, saw their property taxes go down as a result of this historic cut in the property tax rate that our previous mayor uh, ch- championed. You know, people in other parts of town, like where I live in the 12 South area, saw property bills go up. So, you know, we talked about sort of the overall picture, but across the city, there've been big uh, there've been big differences. Um, the idea that raising property tax rates would cause gentrification or be the final straw for certain people. You know, I think it speaks to the difficulty and sort of messiness of the idea of gentrification. A lot of things get bound up in that word. It's very loaded. And you kind of have to pick it apart to understand what people are talking about.
0: Perhaps we'll unpack that on a future episode. In your article, you talked about the basically 25-year push uh, to develop downtown as kind of the economic and After Opryland uh, Park closed, that basically downtown became the tourist hub of Nashville. The convention center under Dean uh, further spurred the confidence of developers to build in downtown. And we saw a residential boom in in downtown that had not happened previously. So dating back to Bredesen and Purcell and Dean and then uh, former Mayor Barry, downtown was certainly the focus of Nashville. Yeah, I would agree. The, the, I would agree with that. The focus of Nashville development, right? And that was a that was a new
1: thing. I mean, Nashville is obviously it's a very big city, geographically. Geographically, right? Uh, it has, f- for most of the past century, been a very suburban city. My understanding is that Mayor Briley, for instance, was a fairly suburban, sunbelt, conservative-oriented person. When Opryland Resort was first made, Mayor Briley, first Mayor Briley, when Opryland Resort was built, uh, what is it, sixteen miles away from downtown, something like that, and it was built with city with city incentives. Mm-hmm. The city incentivized that construction. The future was in the suburbs, and so the turn, you know, back to uh, downtown uh, has been the common project of the past, uh, you know, three, four mayors. Um, But I think there's been a cycle. I mean I would certainly say that someone like Mayor Purcell um, was uh, someone who talked a lot about neighborhoods, who shifted the focus uh, to neighborhood health. And um, I think that it's easy to see an alternating current where you have a mayor focused on economic development. You have a mayor focused on neighborhoods. Uh, certainly, Mayor Dean was very focused on downtown, and so I and would. Barry ex- ran
0: on neighborhoods.
1: Yeah, and I would certainly expect that uh, Nashville is due for a a neighborhood focused uh, mayor. You know, I do. I, I've been you know, kind of critical in my comments about Mayor Briley, but you know, clearly he inherited a difficult situation. And uh, you know, the things that he spent his time on, transit, the budget, the soccer stadium, you know, these are all things that he inherited. So I think it will be interesting to see, uh, you know, what he chooses to prioritize moving forward. And really, he's only now dealt with these major projects that he's inherited. And I suspect he, who wanted to spend as much time on soccer as the city council and the mayor has spent probably very few members of the council
0: it was months and and you closed your article in in uh, July saying that basically because of our budget situation the revenue shortfall that Nashville will be kind of forced to retreat from large scale projects and then and then <laughs> we had soccer
1: Yes. uh, You know, your fact-checking is one of the things that makes this podcast really good. And so perhaps I'm busted there. You know, in my defense, what I would say – what I was trying to say was that Nashville has really benefited from uh, strategic leadership and from a consensus about what the city needs to focus on. And despite the – you know, the uh, shift in emphasis from neighborhoods to downtown – I mean certainly Mayor Bredesen, Mayor Purcell, Mayor Dean, this was a – there was a shared understanding of what the city needed to do and um, you know, that's been very successful. In Nashville's boom, I do worry that you know, certain problems have been neglected or haven't received the attention they deserve. You know, we still have a lot of people in the city you know, living in poverty. The number of people living in poverty is over 100,000 people in a city of you know 680, 690,000 people. You know, that's huge. Housing affordability is a serious and very tricky problem. Uh, you know, we there there are lots of ways that government can spend money inefficiently to address that problem. Um, we're doing a little bit of that. We're not, there's some ways that government could be a seed to, to spark more action. We don't have the resources to do that. You know, infrastructure wise, I talk to people who move here from other States. They love being here, but they kind of say, what's the deal? (laughs) You know, in North Carolina, we have so many more bike lanes or sidewalks or so forth. And, um, crime has declined a lot in Nashville, but in absolute levels, it's still very high. So it worries me that a city which should have the resources to address these problems and to invest in neighborhoods, you know, doesn't at at this moment, just because people feel like it's politically
0: unwise or risky to ask for them. One, on the affordability piece, in, in terms of just housing and where people live, you cited a stat that forecasted only 50,000 people actually moving to Nashville between 2015 and 2025. And of course, that means most of all the growth is happening in the surrounding counties. It seems like one of the biggest issues in terms of a neighborhood issue would be our public schools. And one thing that I guess we can get to a little bit, but it, it probably deserves more more time, is the people who are moving here and eventually having kids, um, if we don't improve the schools, will be, if they have the means, will be forced to move to a surrounding county.
1: Yes, I mean I think we I think we tend to talk about Nashville and the Ma- Nashville areas that are interchangeable. And one of the things that's interesting about Nashville, it has this kind of duality. There is a downtown core and that's part of what makes this really appealing. Mm-hmm. At the same time, this is a very sprawling metropolitan area and most of the growth is still ha- is is going to happen in the future it is if, suburban. In the suburbs, right? And uh, you know, Williamson County is expected to grow to much uh, to add many more people than Nashville. And they have continued to be able to invest in upgrading public schools. They're making a little bit of a different play. Now, parts of Williamson County also have land use regulations that have the effect of excluding low-income people from Williamson County. That is, is, um, you know, not something that could ever be or should ever be brought to Nashville. I mean, I think that the ability of a city to educate its kids and uh, raise uh, and give people a chance to, you know, move up in the world is probably the single best measure um, of how a city is doing. But you know, our decisions do mean that um, we can't address needs that Superintendent Joseph, for instance, has identified, like finding ways to raise teacher salaries for teachers who've been on the job for a few years. And uh, that does worry me. Nashville, I think, has been good at importing young, educated workers. Mm -hmm. And in a world in which there are such premiums for education, I mean, if you want to look at one stat to explain whether a city is successful or is going to be successful, percentage of residents with a college degree or higher, that's it. If it's high, you're probably in good shape. If it's low, you're probably in bad shape. With maybe one or two exceptions, like Los Angeles, which is an ambiguous case. So bringing in skilled workers is a path to success that Nashville has benefited from. But you know, if we don't educate our own kids, then we're stuck in a world in which. Very few people born in poverty or in the lowest 20% of the income level in Nashville are able to ever move, move up. up. I yeah. mean, Nashville and, you know, frankly, all the cities in the southeast are just terrible by this measure, uh, which economists call intergenerational mobility. And um, that's a shame.
0: What's an example of, of a city out there that has had a downtown resurgence, has focused a lot of... A lot of money on on public projects in the downtown core to spur development, and there's been a lot of growth. And then they've transitioned successfully to prioritizing the rest of, the, of of the county. What does that pivot look like? Well, one interesting
1: example, which I'm thinking about because I'm reading his book right now, would be would be Oklahoma City. So you look at the fate of the transit initiative, which was voted down
0: with great enthusiasm and 2 to 1 and essentially it it mapped if you live in the downtown core you voted for transit and if you didn't you voted against it right and you think about uh how
1: does how does the city in you know invest in itself how do we invest in ourselves mm-hmm. and there has to be trust for that to happen I, you know I, I interview a lot of mayors and what i typically hear from from people is you know, in my first term of office, I'm going I'm to really focus on the budget. I'm going to show voters that I can uh, – that we can be very cost effective and that's going to um, win the trust for me to make investments uh, in, the, in the city future. And you know, that's a path that, for instance, Los Angeles mayor and perhaps presidential candidate Eric Garcetti has made. You know, in Oklahoma City, they of a different approach. They created a process where basically they said, look – Uh, We want to invest in Oklahoma City. We want to raise the sales tax to do that. It's going to be uh, just for a short period of time. We're going to do it for a couple of years. It's going to be for a project, something very tangible, not a program. We're not going to borrow any money. Nashville has borrowed a lot of money. In Oklahoma City, they impose the sales tax. The money starts to come in. They don't bond out projects. They build and uh, then the sales tax goes away and uh, that is a very interesting model which worked you know, very well in another very red state. And I wonder if that type of approach is perhaps something that you know, politicians in Nashville should think about.
0: Is there anything else that you want to hit on in terms of the article and, and Nashville moving forward? I think we've covered it. I think that Nashville has the resources it, that
1: it needs to address important problems, to invest in neighborhoods, and to you know, deal with problems like the homeless population and housing affordability and public safety, uh, without doing park sales and land swaps. And you know, I do think that. Uh, the next mayor, whoever that is, will make a turn in that direction.
0: I just worry about the damage that will be done for waiting for two years. And now I do want to talk about police reform and a community oversight. Going back to your article in January, I think not enough people in Nashville certainly have read that article. Um, highly relevant to us because right now we're preparing for an election on a community oversight board in November. And so, certainly, the issue of police accountability and and a community oversight is top of mind now. Wanted to get into your article, you kind of talk about how people maybe don't take into account failures or potentially even negative effects of a community oversight board. Can you explain that to us?
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: I have a I have a different take on police oversight than
1: than uh, many people, and uh, policing is really a subject I love. I've written about it for years and years and so I'm always happy to, uh, to talk about it and it's interesting to see what's happening here in Nashville compa- and compare it to what's, you know, happened in other in other places. Mm-hmm. I mean these, you know, terrible you know, police shootings, um, you know, you just <laughs> – it points to – certainly the Jacques Clemens shootings points to this issue of compliance and the way the police have been trained to expect and insist on compliance. That's something that police departments in some other cities are are trying to rethink and retrain police on and not to always insist on compliance under every circumstance so you know to see a shooting here which which centers on that um, it's uh you know it's heartbreaking and it just makes you uh, it makes you want to bring that national perspective to local issues.
0: So police oversight. Um, quickly, what is that? Can you explain to people who may not be familiar? When you're talking about compliance, is, is this a similar notion to how police frequently will pull off of a high-speed chase now to not kill students crossing the street? That's exactly right. Yes, that is, a, that is the perfect analogy. Uh, for
1: decades, you know, police engaged in high-speed chases. The idea that you could just let someone get away unthinkable <laughs> was unthinkable and um, and the consequences of that policy were that there were uh, lots of crashes and uh, you know bystanders involved in some and sometimes fatal accidents you know police departments stopped doing that uh, very I, very few police departments I, I suspect probably every police department has a as a non-aggressive pursuit policy of some sort now although there are a lot of police departments in the United States so it's probably dangerous to generalize um, yeah. And in terms of compliance, you know, confrontations are really – they're very challenging. I'm not a police officer. Obviously, I'm a reporter. Um, Last year, I had a chance to go spend some time with the Dallas Police Department after the shooting of police officers there. And um, it was fascinating. They'd taken over a high school and they were doing training scenarios. And one thing that they were trying to work through was when is it appropriate to insist on compliance and when – When should you let it go? Like if someone's disrespectful to you or doesn't answer a question, traditionally police have been told that once you engage with a citizen, you know, you need to – they need to comply. And then if you don't have compliance, you're letting things get dangerously out of control. You know, it was an eye-opening experience for me. Things happen very fast and we just had, you know, pellet guns and body armor Mm -hmm. and being threatened or dealing with ambiguous situations, it, it made me sympathetic to police. Uh, at the same time, I do think culturally there are times where, you know, if someone's an asshole, that doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, you need to bring them to heal. If someone doesn't comply with the request, maybe there are times where, you know, it's, it's, it would be okay just to, just to let it go. Um, with civilian oversight of policing – this is such an interest. This is such a an interesting subject. This is a approach that goes that goes back to the nineteen forties. There's a long history of supposed civilian oversight of policing. Generally, the model that people have in mind is a certain type of thing, and uh, it involves creating a civilian board that's going to look at. Um, Often back in matters, you know, shootings or incidents that have occurred after the fact, and these civilians are supposed to assess and perhaps investigate uh, with the, you know, with the police or on their own incidents that have occurred. Uh, most police departments, of course, have internal affairs divisions that do these these things. Sometimes these civilian oversight boards work with them. Sometimes they have their own investigators. And you know, take Chicago you know, a city which obviously has, you know, struggled with violence and has struggled with police brutality. I mean, Mm -hmm. there is a horrifying history of of police brutality uh, in Chicago, and there's a crisis of trust. And uh, it goes both ways, honestly. There are many people, uh, you know, in Chicago, particularly South Side African American communities don't trust the police, and there are a lot of police who are pretty who are pretty upset with the way that the leadership of the city is, you know, not letting them do policing. You know, Chicago has done iteration after iteration of civilian review board. We are literally on the. F- fourth or maybe the fifth iteration right now. Chicago has and every iteration basically it's done the same thing. It's added investigators. It's increased the budget. In the current iteration, they're going from 70 to 90, 90. investigators. I mean Mayor Briley has expressed concerns about the cost of the Nashville Oversight Board. You know, what You know what has happened? What, what have all of these civilian oversight boards you know, resulted in? I mean, in the argument of many people, They've resulted in less accountability for police because the danger is if you carve out responsibility for investigation, in some ways, you make it less important for the police to do on its own. Um, if you, you – know, that's one problem. And of course, penetrating you know, the blue wall as it's sometimes called is very hard for outsiders And so, I mean, I feel pretty confident in saying that that traditional civilian oversight model has worked poorly and has often
0: hurt police accountability. I mean, in Chicago, it hurt police accountability. I know that you mentioned in in your January article that whenever the community oversight boards don't work... Advocates for the oversight boards say, "Well, we need more funding, and we need to make it even more truly independent." Right, and, right.
1: And the, but I think there's another. I think there's another approach, and I hope that um, policymakers in Nashville will consider it. And I honestly expect they will. Um, a, a thinker who's very interesting in this sphere is um, a law school professor, Barry Friedman, who was at Vanderbilt for many years.
0: Of the Policing Project.
1: Yes. And he's now at NYU. And he wrote a few years ago a fantastic book called Unwarranted. And in that book, he talks about – he makes a distinction between back-end police oversight and accountability and front-end. And he says – Changing
0: policies.
1: Yeah. And he says basically police accountability and oversight has always been very focused on the back-end looking at things after something has gone wrong. And we know that that has not that approach has not resulted in notable successes. In fact, arguably it's you know, it's it's you know, backfired. He recommends focusing on the front end, you know, involving citizens in, making policies and setting up systems and having input into how policing takes place. And, you know, he notes that there are lots of parts of government that have a history of doing that. They have advisory committees. There's a body of administrative law, which is all about bringing in citizen input on the front end. And, uh, you know, why aren't we doing that in, in policing? The policing project is pretty new. You know he's he's just been working on that.
0: He has been working with Nashville for the past year, so I'm really hopeful that something comes out of that. Well, his involvement here has been controversial in that uh, when I spoke with Theta Murphy and Sekou Franklin for my earlier podcast about their push for a community oversight board, um, they were uh, they were not big fans of Mr. Friedman and the uh, policing project. I know Mayor Berry brought in the uh, policing project and, is, and uh, championed that, and current Mayor Browley kind of has picked up where she left off in support of the policing project and hesitant to support the oversight board. Well, that, that's, that is very interesting, and I'm going to see Professor
1: Friedman this Friday. He's having a conference at NYU, so if you have any Nashville questions, just, just put them to me. I'll, I'll ask him and report back. I mean, there are some good models, and I think it starts with systems thinking, um you know, thinking a lot of cities have, have embraced an, an, an IG Inspector General approach and uh, where they'll say what policies are in place, you know, for police departments to address this issue. And Denver, I think, is a really interesting model. They have a relatively small, you know, 15-person office, which has been operating with a lot of success for a long time. They audit policies and systems. They put out an annual report on what's happening with policing. They also have the ability to do some investigations but they don't try to preempt the police department's ability to investigate things itself. And in a certain sense, the real name of the game is to make it clear to police leaders and police departments. That we value civility. We, we value restraint. And if you can create a system of rewards, you know, for those things, I think that's very powerful. You know, Nashville, the Metro Police has done some things in the past which were quite innovative. You know, for many years, uh, the police had an annual survey that asked lots of questions, About, you know, had you had interactions with the police? Were you satisfied with those interactions? Maybe that continues. um, But that's the type of approach that can help, you know, create rewards for police leaders who can meet those goals. A great, you know, a great example would be in addressing corruption, kind of similar to police brutality, The traditional approach was have an internal affairs unit that ferrets it out and maybe appoint outside investigators to look for corruption. You know, in the early 1970s, New York had a big corruption problem, mainly with vice officers taking payoffs to allow gambling to occur. And instead of doing that traditional approach, the legendary police commissioner Patrick Murphy basically said, you know what? I'm going to make precinct commanders responsible for corruption you know, internal affairs is still going to exist. They're going to do stings. They're going to test out officers in the field and see if there are incidents of corruption. The person, the borough commander who's the least effective at reducing corruption, I'm getting rid of. You're gone. What that did was make fighting corruption an integral part of policing. And so I think that promoting civility and restraint you know, it has to be rewarded within the organization. You have to make it something the organization values. You know, efforts to carve it out, to have someone else investigate policing haven't, haven't worked very well. It's much better to focus on front-end input, getting some guidance on the front-end. You know, looking at systems, having an audit and oversight role. At least that's what I think my reporting convinced me of.
0: Why must kind of front-end accountability, as, as you've coined it, and so-called back-end accountability, why must those be mutually exclusive? And so why couldn't we have a community oversight board to look into instances of potential misconduct that are not – the perception is they're not being properly dealt with internally and also at the same time look into policies?
1: The short answer is they, they are not mutually exclusive you you are you're you are correct. there's no reason they have to be mutually exclusive and you know models that I think are really promising, such as the Denver model, they have a mix. There's an audit function, there's a systems focus there's a there's a role promoting transparency by doing reports. you know they also have the ability to you know work with uh, investigators. That's a very different approach than What I will describe as an adversarial system where you have an independent group of 90 investigators who you are going to – who are going to be responsible for conducting their own investigation. Separate from the criminal process. Separate from – separate from the police investigations. Police chiefs do not want to lose the ability to discipline their officers – I think I, I can understand why. And you know the problem is there's a tension in police oversight. If you set yourself up as an outsider, you have independence, but you have less insight into what's really happening in the department. And so the hybrid models that have a mix of front-end and back-end and that are able to have enough discretion – to have some trust and see what's happening in a department, while also you know having your annual report and having the ability to go public, it's less satisfying. You know, it, it, it's messy. It means that you don't have perfect transparency, but I think that it is proven to be more effective. And of course, it speaks to this issue of you know police of, of police leadership and uh, what the command values and what it rewards in the force. And um, that's important too. I mean it's all really hard. You can do everything right and it just takes, you know, one or two incidences to destroy trust which has been has been really built up.
0: Um, but, you know, part – Or I think the – I mean that's certainly true. It just takes a couple bad actors. It takes a couple stressed out cops to, to – Make the situation explode, but I know from from talking to the proponents of the oversight board, I think they would say that those instances um brought things to light and it 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 kind of boiled over in in two really tragic uh deaths, but that um those tensions and and that lack of trust was present before right yeah i i would not I would not
1: question that, and the question is when something comes to light. You know, how do you want to address it? Mm-hmm. I mean there should be justice and you know, the criminal justice, there should be justice for victims. There's no – I don't think there's any question about that. At the same time, you know, if there – when there are training problems, when you need to talk about compliance, when you need to talk about use of force – You know, when you need to talk about what systems are we going to put in place to gauge attitudes, to get feedback from affected communities about how they're being policed. I mean, Austin right now is doing a really cool project with the Urban Institute, which is all about trying to get some really fine-grained feedback in high-crime, heavily policed communities about how that's going there's this really interesting idea in policing right now, which is sometimes it's used – the buzz phrase is procedural fairness or sometimes you'll hear legitimacy, which is a little bit more loaded. And it's really interesting and speaks to the advantages of of approaches that incorporate some front end. Basically, it's associated with a psychologist at Yale, Tom Tyler, did a lot of work on the court system. And what he found was that people's satisfaction with the court going to court – and even their compliance with things like child care, they didn't care so much about the outcome of their court case. I mean you would think that people would be happy if they prevailed or won their court case and mm-hmm. upset if they didn't. What they really wanted was they wanted to understand what was happening. They sort of wanted to have a chance to have their say. And if you would just let people have their say in a little bit less formal way, you could really increase compliance with court orders. And so, you know, within policing circles, there's been a lot of thought about how can we promote procedural fairness and legitimacy. You know, it leads to things like police departments saying to officers, explain to someone why you stopped them. Just give them an explanation. You know, you could be pulled over and you could think it's racial profiling. And, you know, that would be probably a reasonable thing to think in a lot of circumstances. If If a police officer pulled you over and said, I pulled you over because we were looking for this. That can make you feel a little bit different. And so you know, building advisory boards, input, having civilian oversight, these are all explaining how things work. It's sort of all part of this broad effort to you know, promote procedural justice and uh, promote legitimacy.
0: Well, I certainly encourage people to read the article. Um, again, the name of that is is police departments grapple with who should hold them accountable. And that was in the January issue of Governing magazine, and I do plan to do a follow up with uh, Professor Franklin and Theta Murphy to discuss the community oversight push as it gets closer to the vote. Are there any final thoughts that you have about the proposal here and sort of the path forward that Nashville should take? Well, I mean, I'd like to hear their res- I would like to hear their response to this story. I'd like to know what they think about a mixed
1: model like Denver, and it would be interesting to know, you know, why they don't like the more front-end approach of the policing project. So I hope that you'll ask them about that. I mean, I also look forward to some clarity from our elected leadership. I mean, as I understand it, the mayor has said that he's in favor of police oversight. He
0: will put in place some type of police oversight if this initiative fails. I think he said he would do an executive order if this didn't pass, but safe to say they would it would at least look different in some regard. Yes. And then he perhaps expressed
1: concern about budgeting by charter amendment, Mm -hmm. um, you know, which is reasonable. uh, But I do think that, you know, there needs to be more clarity in that regard. And, you know, I do think one final thing to say is that uh, in reporting my story about Nashville, you know, one thing that I heard frequently was, you know, concern from North Nashville, you know, primarily black North Nashville about – what the city was prioritizing mm-hmm. and what it wasn't prioritizing. And, you know, there was certainly a sense that Mayor Berry had made promises that she didn't keep. And, you know, there is real concern about, you know, the way the city is being policed as well. Um, you know, Howard Gentry is very proud of the work that he's been doing and expunging criminal records I mean, I think this is a very big issue for the city, and it's no longer hidden as a result of these police shootings, you know. But the need to learn from best practices and really start working on trying to figure this out, I think, is is urgent. And uh, you know, I hope that it's something that. Uh, police politicians and community members can come can come together and, and work on together. This is hard stuff, but there are examples of places, I think about Watts in Los Angeles, which have created organizations which have really, uh, you know built some trust and at least open lines of communication and built some
0: relationships and let people be heard. And that makes a really big difference. I think it's, it's important for people to take a look at the article, listen back to the podcast with Dr. Franklin and Theta Murphy, and uh, perhaps for the next one, can have you on with them and sort of discuss together. That'd be fantastic. I'd love, to, I'd love to do that. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. It was a great discussion and look forward to more. Thank you. This was fun.